Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, salam, and welcome to the podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, a channel with the New Books Network. This is your co-host, Shahna Saqani. Today, our conversation is with Celine Ibrahim about her new book, Women and Gender in the Quran, published with Oxford University Press in 2020. Ibrahim earned her PhD in Arabic and Islamic Civilizations at Brandeis University. She's editor of One Nation Indivisible, Seeking Liberty and Justice from the Pulpit to the Streets, published with WIF and Stock Publishers in 2019. She's currently working on a manuscript that explores the concept of monotheism in Islamic intellectual history, which is forthcoming with Cambridge University Press. In Women and Gender in the Quran, Ibrahim explores key themes related to gender in the Quran, focusing on women such as female sexuality, female kin and relations, and female figures in the sacred text. Among her findings is that there are no archetypal women in the Quran, and instead, the Quran provides a wide-ranging depiction of women who figure as negative and positive exemplars, and ultimately serve the specific didactic aims of the Quranic narrative. The Quran invokes their good and bad examples, Ibrahim notes, especially to construct a moral framework for its immediate audience, the early Muslim community, the emerging polity. In our discussion, she talks about the primary contributions of the book and its origins. She explains her choice to use a Quran-only approach to investigating the question of gender. And we discuss specific content from the book, such as the Quran's portrayal of daughters and mothers, women's speech, Muhammad's wives in the Quran, the concept and the gender of heavenly beings, such as the Hur, and a lot more. This here is my conversation with Celine Ibrahim. Hi, Celine. Thank you so much for joining me today to talk about your book, Women and Gender in the Quran. Hi, Sheikh Naz. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. So it is our tradition on the New Books Podcast to ask our guests to tell us about their intellectual journey and how they got here. Could you walk us through that? Yes. So my intellectual journey in terms of Islamic studies is a bit of a combination of having a traditional background and coming to the text as a Muslim who lives this as a devotional practice, and then also studying Islam through academic means. And so I think for those who approach the book, they can see a bit of both of those influences coming through. Nice. And how did the book come about and why now? I can remember being in a classroom in a graduate school with Leila Ahmed, and it was the first time that I had thought about gender and Islam in a sustained way. And uh, we were looking at a at the tradition of having concubines in, in Islamic law. And I think that was, for the first time for me, this opening into what it meant to be a woman specifically in Islam. And since that point, I think, for me anyway, there was always some type of intellectual struggle between 
what I was discovering, you know, coming to texts and traditions from a more historical critical perspective, and then just my my practice of of being a Muslim. And so in many ways, when I was you know, deciding on my first book length project, I wanted it to be a project where I could continue to explore some of those questions that I had, you know, those places where my own practice met kind of the the intellectual history and, and that caused me some friction. And at the same time, I thought that it would also be beneficial for others who were also potentially you know, in their practice as Muslims having particular questions uh, regarding gender. Mm, for sure. I, you know, I think this book would be, and not I think, I know this book, and I was just talking to some colleagues about this and friends about this, that it would be such, and it is such an excellent and also very liberating read for a lot of, um, for Muslims who, for not, for, for academics too, I'm sure, but for non-academic Muslims who are looking for a, you know, women-centric um interpretation of the Quran, something that puts women at the center and some of the conclusions that you make and the interpretations that you offer, I think can be very freeing for a lot of us. So thank I think you for I this also book. have to give Omid Safi a little credit here because very early on in my graduate studies, I had presented a paper and he, after hearing the paper, he had come to me and we started a discussion and essentially you know, he said it much more eloquently like this, but this is what my memory uh, you know, distilled is you know, there's so many positive things to focus on about women in Islam. Why have you only chosen, you know, this whole list of um, of negatives? And that, for me, kind of set me in a different trajectory. And and so I just kind of wanted to give him credit for that, for taking, you know, aside a, a young graduate student and and really opening up a horizon of potential. And I I think in many ways, when I set about doing the book, of course, I set about doing it as an academic, you know, as a research project. But at the same time, I, I did also, you know, want to Im- imbue the writing with a particular type of, of as you say, maybe like a, a liberating spiritual perspective. Mm-hmm. So this, since there's a lot of wonderful scholarship on women and gender in the Quran currently, I'm wondering if you could tell our audience a little bit about what makes your book different? What intervention, inter- interventions you're making, and where, and, or I guess, and whether the book, your book, fit, if fits into, or how this book fit, fits into this um, broader literature. Yes, in my earlier work and with, um, with the field in general, much of the writing about women in the Quran was focused more on a legalistic perspective, and for me. Um, there's only so far that can go in terms of um, the capturing more of of the fullness of um, the depiction of women in the Quran. So legal verses are, are one sort of genre, but stories are, you know, as you know, a large portion of the Quran. And I I knew that there was work out there that looked at specific stories in detail. And I know that there were some earlier accounts to at least pull together. I'm thinking of the work of Stowasser and later uh, Amina Wadud. But I I didn't find a book out there that I would say want to give to my daughters or my friends or my students. And so I sort of set out to write that book 
that would distill in as comprehensive a way as possible the the tropes and themes about women figures you know making that distinction between woman as a as a category that then has a, a type of legal valence from from this genre of just you know stories and and what are you know women characters like when we when we look at their you know, not just deeply at one particular story, but as a as a cohort, if you will. Mm-hmm. No, it's. I mean, some of the themes you cover, I I couldn't think of, and the only thing that I could think of actually that I that re- that relates to gender that doesn't get covered in here is men. <laughs> no, I mean only only in relation to women they do, of course. But um, you know, given that gender, it turns out men too shockingly have a gender, and we talk about gender today, but still. Uh, focus on women, and so other than men and masculinity as a theme, which you you do address in in the conclusion briefly, um, but it's pretty. I mean, you have a uh, you you talk about female sex and sexuality. Um, you talk about sexual slander, sexual assault, uh, otherworldly sexualities. You talk about female kin relations, procreation, parents. It's I mean, it's really really comprehensive. It's incredible. I'm about uh, eighty pages in, yeah. into a manuscript on men and gender in the Quran, so we'll see uh, where that project goes. You know, it might take me another ten oh, years, so but it's it is <laughs> currently in the works to some degree. <laughs> Very exciting to hear. Um, so then, so can you walk us through some of the essentials, like the frameworks and the, the and the methodology of the book, how you're approaching question the question of gender and women in the Quran um, to ground your analysis. Great. Yeah, so the first decision point I really had to make was, you know, who who is counting as a woman figure here? And that that I decided would include women who are mentioned in parables, such as um, the the woman figure who, you know, unties the knots or or you know, that how we translate that is just um, in dispute, but you know these small mentions. So a woman figure in just one verse, and then my second question was, how do I deal with the women figures that are extrapolated much more so in the tafsir tradition than they are in the Quran? Um, and I, I pretty early on decided that the bulk of my focus, because I, I was really interested in the Quran itself as sort of this literary, um, you know, revealed text for Muslims as a, as a complete um, corpus in and of itself, I, I decided that while I would engage tafsir, that I would actually keep that at to a minimum so that I could actually do as much justice as possible to the verses that I was looking at. Uh, because when I started, you know, enumerating them, I, I was over 300 verses that I found you know, relevant to this particular study. And so I didn't want to bog myself down so much in the, in the tafsir tradition, and particularly because that had been done by previous authors, you know, looking at specific stories. And, and so I felt that, that that resource was already out there in different forms. But the, um, the, actual way in which figures contrast with each other, uh, you know, for instance, looking at the figure of, of Zuleikha and thinking about how other women in the Quran who are portrayed as, as you know, sexually chaste, how they 
um, compare and contrast with her figure. And so I thought there, there was a lot that was in the Quran, you know, itself to dig into beyond, you know, without going beyond um, too much into the, the tafsir. And of, and of course, especially in the later chapters, when I'm talking about more of the stories of the women in Medina, or for instance, even in, in the early Meccan surah that discusses the wife of, of Abu Lahab, I need some tafsir, but I really just took from tafsir the very basic outlines of stories. I didn't go, I didn't center, so to speak, the the commentator's interpretation of the stories. I really tried to look very closely at, at what was in the text itself, the Quran, and and limit myself as much as possible to that. You know, speaking of which, I I want to take a moment to address this larger question of gender and or women in the Quran. When we use only the Quran as a source of our interpretation, which I completely recognize as a completely legitimate and valid and often even necessary task, what exactly does such a task say about the role of text and especially of scripture? Because are we trusting and expecting the text to make complete sense outside of any context? Because... I feel like a lot of these verses and themes that you talk about have context, and I'm I'm not talking about context, um, you know, to, uh, I'm not talking necessarily about socio-historical or political contexts in which these verses are revealed, but I'm also talking about verses that are part of a larger surah, right, or a larger theme in a specific surah. So the way that women talk, for example, is also very similar to the way that men talk, uh, something like that, right? And I wonder what we lose we focus on a specific verse or a word without contextualizing it in, say, the larger surah or the theme of that surah. So can you share some thoughts with us on um, what you were aiming for by looking at each verse and gender theme on its own and using that specific verse alone um, to make your point? Is it is it even really possible to, re- to, 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 inter- to interpret the Quran using the Quran alone? Yes, I like to think about it as different layers of meaning. So you're you're going to get one type of reading if you're just looking at at the Quran alone. And there's going to be value in that. I mean, that's that's my conviction, sort of both as a practicing Muslim and and just as as a you know a scholar of the text. And and so, you know, for instance, what I'm doing with the 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 heavenly beings in, in paradise, that's just looking at the text alone and and trying to say, you know, what what sort of depiction, you know, taking away the backdrop of you know many centuries of writing and interpretation on this subject, you know, as much as possible, what are we getting from from this you know, different lens, this different approach that is Quran only? And it, it's not that I'm advocating in an ultimate sense that that is the only or the best way to read. I just think it has, it, it's a modality of reading specifically when it comes to to the women figures that has been totally overlooked, you know, in favor of a, of a tafsir, um, you know, tradition and, and that particular approach, which tends to extrapolate stories maybe beyond their, their Quranic context a bit. Um, and so that that's what I was interested in, just more providing a multiplicity of readings, providing a depth that 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 a Quran only approach makes possible. 
And again, I wasn't finding it in devotional Muslim context so much because of the influence and the weight of of the the tafsir tradition, but I also wasn't finding it in academic approaches to the Quran. I, I think because there has been an emphasis on maybe reading the Quran through the tafsir tradition rather than just kind of reading the Quran, you know, for, for its own for its own sake. Um, so there there remains just so much work to be done, I think, taking that methodological approach. And again, it's not, you know, for for the devotional, you know, audience, I, I don't mean to be undermining the tafsir tradition at all. I just think that there's additional insights that are still, you know, in, in uh, the Quran ready to be mined that the tafsir tradition, you know, it has not exhausted Mm-hmm. That's very helpful, you know. And 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 let's be real here: the tafsir tradition is very, very masculine, and it's by men and or the the stuff that's remained, that's that's left for us, right? And so, um, the stuff that survived. I mean, and so when they're they're going to interpret it in ways like the whole discussion, I found very convincing in your book because it's the fact that you tell us it's not it's not this feminine gendered being, which I'll come back to this later in, in specific questions about that, but. Um, the tafsir tradition completely disagrees and it's because they're coming at it from a very, very different perspective. And also there are men who are putting their, you know, their own selves and interests into the text. And we've seen a lot of evidence of that. And I think Amina Wadud and, and you also do a very good job explaining how um, sort of, you know, we read things into the Quran anyway. But that also then brings me to say, which I mean, it, it, your response, which is very helpful, also makes me wonder about the role that this book is, that, what, what you see as a, the, this book, the role that you see this book to be playing in Muslim readers' lives and how you might respond to those. And, I'm, and, and by those, I mean here specifically these devotional Muslims that you're, that you're thinking of, um, the same folks who might find something, a book like this, very liberating, right, very freeing, who would say, well, maybe the Quran doesn't gender, say, the Hur, but the Hadiths do. How do we deal with something like that? Or if you have any thoughts at all to share, I, this is not, a, we don't have to talk yeah, about this, this is, at all. This, this is pretty, pretty idiosyncratic of my approach, but I feel like I was never really trained well as a Hadith scholar. And so it is a realm that I've not you know, specifically claimed to have expertise in, in the same way. And, and so I think it's for maybe my future work, maybe someone else's work to look more closely, you know, in a, in a as comprehensive a way as possible about themes of gender in, in the Hadith, um, because some, some of these, some of these questions can't be answered by just looking at a small subset. It really needs to be comprehensive and holistic to try to understand you know, from from a scholarly perspective or from a devotional perspective, you know, what what these texts not only what they're saying to maybe their initial audience, but what they're supposed to be saying to a, a contemporary audience. And you know, for me, for me, there's a you know to say that I'm not qualified to look at at hadith. Firstly, I'm not qualified from an academic perspective, and I'm also not qualified in terms of a, a devotional Muslim um, perspective either. 
And, you know, maybe that's qualifications that I'll eventually pursue um, sometime in life. But I, I think it's important to, you know, when we're, when we're working, whether in, the, uh, whether in academia or, you know, in other, in other spheres, in, in kind of contemporary religious communities, to, to know our boundaries and to know what areas we are um, experts in and what areas we might be doing more harm if we try to assert a particular claim. Like I have not done the work to sufficiently probe that issue and, you know, it, it, it needs to be done, of course. Um, so maybe I'm the one to do it. Maybe there's someone else out there who, who has that particular interest. Also, it you know, it also raises a lot of important questions about if we're going to be, if once we find evidence about a particular, something like a fact in the Quran, why are we so invested in sort of challenging that and saying, well, I don't think, why, why do we want to contradict that using a different source, like the hadiths, which are secondary to the Quran? Like, you know, Muslims agree that the Quran is the most superior of all the sources of Islam. So it would then raise a lot of questions about the, the, the what what what's, what relevance does the Quran end up serving after all if we're not looking at it as a primary source, you know, for understanding something like gender in this case. But yeah, and another um, but yeah, no. question is what's at stake. And so for me personally, in asking the question about the hur and and trying to see what the Quranic depiction um, precisely was. It was a question of, you know, does God care in an ultimate sense about, you know, women's, um, you know, desires, or, you know, to, to put it kind of in a crude way. Um, and, and I think, you know, for me personally, when I'm approaching the work, I, I am approaching it with questions that are kind of partly intellectual curiosities, but partly come out of my work. I didn't mention it yet, but I served as a chaplain for many years in, in a college setting. And, you know, working with young women here in, in, that, in that phase of their lives who are trying to make sense of their own Muslim identity. And so once, for me personally, once I can answer a question to, you know, satisfaction, to my own personal satisfaction, I, I lose uh, interest in it a little bit. So that's that's why I haven't delved dived into this this a bit further because to me it seems like the the depiction of heavenly beings is much different in the Quran than I was finding in other sources, kind of just casually uh, perusing them. And so as soon as I established for myself that there was, as, as we might call it, a particular, you know, male lens on this topic, um, you know, and, and then I could bring maybe what we might call a female lens or my own lens to it, then I was more inclined to feel satisfied that, that I had at least answered the question to, to my own satisfaction anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's you know, a selfish way to do scholarship, <laughs> but... But, you know, yeah. I, it, we have short lives and we have to kind of pursue what's the most interesting. Yeah. You know, I was going to wait until, since, since the word hood has come up a few times now, I was going to wait until later to ask a question about specific content um, of the book. But now that we're here, I I, I would love for, for us to just continue this and um, talk about the hood a bit more than and to, to address a question that I had in mind. When we're talking, it was one of my was one of my most favorite discussions of the book. I'm very interested in the idea of. For me, it's also a question of what's at stake. Why does God, God care so much about you know X Y Z? But one of the more uh, convincing parts of the, the book for me was this question of the hur 
and this idea of the beings in heaven and whether they're sexed and feminine and whether virginity is a feminine trait and so on. And you argue that the Hur, with all the various words for them, so the relevant terms, you know, something like kawaib or wildan mukhaladun or abkar and Hur and so on, whether um, these terms are necessarily inherently literally feminine uh, grammatically and so on. I like the distinction that you make between sensuous and sexual beings and that these beings, beings are sensuous. Can you walk us through this conclusion of yours that the sensuous beings of heaven um, are actually not necessarily feminine and that no term that actually, ling- th- th- there's no term used in, in, these, in these verses that would linguistically and literally amount to a maiden, um, you know, crushing sadly the hearts of many people who are fooled, uh, you know, fooled humans amongst us. But um, can you go ahead and talk to us more about this feminine, the, this non Feminine beings, after all. So what I'm doing is I'm trying to make a distinction between human beings, which are a specific category of beings that inhabit this earth, and eschatological beings, which are not human. Um, You know, there's no insan in described by the Quran as being in in paradise. It's all the nefs. There's lots of nefs in paradise, and so if we think about the term nefs, it's most frequently in the Quran, gendered female. And so if you have descriptions of heavenly beings and they are not, um, you know, they're described in, in you know, using this word but as, as nefs, and then it would make sense that, that some of them have feminine adjectives. And there's also this category like the wilden. And, it, you know, if we're looking at Arabic grammar, we know that collective plurals can you know, be gender inclusive here. So I'm, I'm also kind of playing with this idea of, of will then being, you know, the, all of these, these heavenly beings are in this new kind of, um, um, this, um, I'm, I'm trying to translate the word like abkar, like, um, um, fresh uh, state, this this virginal state, like not thinking about virginity as as literally having a hymen or having not had sexual intercourse before, but as being virginal in the sense of being new and um, a new creation, which the, the Quran uses that kind of imagery of. And so I'm I'm trying to just probe a little bit deeper, you know, again, reading the Quran sort of in its own terms about who precisely are these beings that it's pretty clear some of them are former souls that that have been, you know, brought forth in this newly created state. Um, and, and, you know, in that exploration, the, the Quran certainly has innuendos that are very sexualized to you know describe the interactions between these beings and one of the things i found fascinating was that there's descriptions of lots of food in paradise and there's you know specific descriptions of the people in paradise uh, consuming this food and, and taking great pleasure in consuming this food and there's also a parallel then between you know potentially um, sexual relations is also you know, one of the these the pleasures uh, of of paradise, but the the Quran does not you know promise that. And some people might say that 
oh, well, that, that's a certain ethic of modesty coming through. But then I also showed that if you look at other verses that talk about um, sexuality in the Quran and sexual congress and, and interaction um, between human beings, you find that, yes, sometimes the Quran speaks in, in innuendos, but sometimes it's very direct. And, and so I, I don't know that that um, kind of the, uh, a modesty question would would really come into play when when other verses certainly discuss the issue of of sex and sexuality very directly. Yeah. One of the topics that you take up here is that you know is that of Yusuf and Zuleikha, who of course isn't named, and you observe that the only mention of sexual exploitation or assault involves a woman assailant. Which seems really significant. And I wanted to ask if you could say more about this and, you know, what this might mean and how do we as contemporary humans living in an age of Me Too deal with something like this? Yeah, my thinking in this came out of a panel that I was asked to sit on a while back for the Journal of Feminist Studies and Religion looking at um, sexual violence in in sacred texts. And I was sort of anchoring part of the, the Muslim response to this question. And so I, I noticed that you do have the story of, of the angels and the mob, um, you know, the, that the angels that come to, to Abraham and Lut and the, the mob that wants to force itself, themselves onto the angels. So you, there's that one mention um, of kind of a, a, a sexual assault type of situation uh, but then it's if you actually look at what story actually has figures interacting in this way, you find that that you know with Zuleha's proposal, in a very clear manner, uh, Yusuf Joseph is saying no, <laughs> and I, I think that for uh, I, I mean I use this story when I teach in you know more devotional contexts as well to think about what what consent means and to also you know reread this story as not just a woman kind of in in insinuating you know forcing herself upon a man which might be you know in, in our experience it might be that the opposite is actually true in in that most of sexual assault you know cases involve, um, you know, a male perpetrator and, and, a, a, you know, a woman victim or survivor. Um, I think that having the, not having the trauma in a way of reliving an assault, if you're a woman coming to the Quran and you have experienced that trauma in your life and you're, you know, just standing in tarawih prayer, it could be a bit more traumatizing to have it be a woman, um, you know, who's the the on the victim side. Given that that's the case that's so much more prevalent in in human history, if I can just kind of guess at it in, in that broad sweep. Um, and so I think that there's you know, there's a way to to read this in in you know a literary lens, but I think there's also some potential here for the story as uh, to be read in, in kind of this this context of, of morality as well and thinking what 
what lessons are there to open up this conversation in contemporary Muslim context? Because it's a it's a conversation that needs to be had, you know, in a practical sense in in contemporary communities. And to be able to open it through a story, I, I think, is a really helpful way. And, you know, the story, again, as it's told, it's potentially less re-traumatizing to women who are more likely to actually have experienced this type of um, unwanted sexual advance. One of, one of the primary arguments that you make in this book is that, you know, the Quran doesn't provide any one exact, there's no archetypal um, woman in the Quran. There's, you know, women aren't, you know, just good or just bad or, you know, one way or another. They're essentially human, right? So they're complex. They make mistakes. They're problematic. They're virtuous. They're bad and they're good and so on. But we do have stuff like, uh, and, and I loved these, you know, uh, basic facts that you mentioned here and there, which I think are so significant. And I wanted to say, tell me more about this. But one of the points that you make, for example, is that the portrayal of, of uh, the point of the portrayal of daughters in the Quran or of sisters in the Quran. So there are no corrupt daughters, for instance, you point out, and there are no conflicts mentioned between sisters. What does this mean, though? And I mean, here I'm thinking, oh, crap, how, how could the patriarchy exploit something like this? Because, oh, look, you know, how this just means that women are, I don't know, inherently compassionate and good and they avoid conflict and so on, which at the same time, the patriarchy also doesn't think that way of women. So I would love to hear your thoughts. Like, what does it mean that this is how it looks like the Quran is portraying sisters and daughters? Yes, and mothers too, right? Because you have mothers who right. who maybe make make some mistakes. Like there's a mother in a parable who, with her husband, you know, prays for a child and then essentially you know, forgets her piety. And and um, there, you know, there's there's stories in which mothers are censured. So Noah, Noah, um, his wife, uh, presumably, you know, she has children, or at least Noah's children are mentioned in other verses, but you never see a woman you know, interacting with her children in a morally uh, reprehensible way, whereas you do have a figure like Abraham's father, you know, threatening to stone him for you know, having different, um, different theological convictions. So, yeah, what do we do with that? Um, you know, part, sometimes as I was working on this manuscript, I would immediately see the you know, potential relevance of, of such a, an observation. And at other points, you know, any given observation and at other points I could just observe something and I wasn't exactly sure myself, you know, what, what is the, the meaning of this or what meaning could I ascribe to this? And really that the question about, you know, no, no corrupt mothers, you know, interacting directly with their children and no, corrupt sisters, no corrupt daughters. Um, You know, on the one hand, there's less, in total, there's less women figures mentioned. And, you know, in my work on the the men and gender in the Quran, I'm trying to get a precise number of how many many male figures I would count um, as I did with the, the women figures. But there's definitely less women. Um, you know, but but still, I'm kind of left at. Um, I don't know what to do with that necessarily. Um, so I welcome uh, anybody out there who has ideas about that. It's certainly a topic for for more exploration. 
Yeah, no, for sure. And and related to that also, you have a very important point about the ways that women figure in Makkan surahs and Madinan ones. So you suggest that their stories serve as lessons for the early emerging Muslim community. Um, you note that the Quran begins with negative examples, and I loved this fact as well, that it begins with negative examples of Makkan, in, in Makkan surahs, but transitions into more positive ones, which you call um, a chronological arc of revelation, I believe it was. Can you elaborate on this? Yeah, so I'm reading through primarily three different lenses. So one is just the Mus'haf, you know, reading from the Fatiha to to um, the the surahs at the end. Another way is to read the revelatory order, which of course isn't precise. It's a debated debated order, but at least the general arc is pretty much agreed on both in. Uh, Orientalist Western scholarship on the Quran, as well as in devotional scholarship on the Quran. So there, was, I just basically took that general arc and and read the Quran in that revelatory order. Uh, and then there's also the order of of sacred history, which of course the Quran doesn't give uh, per se, but that can be understood. Again, this is something that I would have to go to to extra Quranic sources to to understand, but you know, kind of how do the different prophetic families relate to one another in an overarching um, sequence. Uh, but in terms of reading the, the, the revelatory order, and again, I'm, I'm careful in the book to say that this is not a, you know, precise science, that this this is, you know, I'm just taking a general arc that, that has broadly been established. Uh, but we do find that uh, the figure of, like, the wife of, of Abu Lahab is the first and... Um, really only Meccan woman to be uh, condemned in such harsh terms. Later on, we find that the wife of Abu, um, or sorry, the wife of Noah and the wife of, of Lot, the, the wife of Noah and, and, and uh, Lut, sorry, are also condemned, uh, you know, damned to hell in very explicit terms. And those those are the only figures that you find that are in those explicit terms damned. And, and so I, I do see that when we read the, the arc, it, the, the Quran goes from these early dis- descriptions of human beings originating from this one soul that is then bifurcated and, and that concept continually comes back. We find that the the concept of these this damned woman, you know, comes in Abi Lahab in in the verses on Abi Lahab that are very early in the arc of Revelation. And again, though that idea of, of damned woman comes pretty consistently because the wife of of Lut is mentioned uh, with some regularity, especially throughout the late Meccan and, and early Medinan period. But then by the time we get to the later Quranic verses, it's really focused on women who are bringing specific questions about their status to, you know, to bear. And this, these are stories like the women who are tested for their loyalty you know, the woman who has an issue with her her husband and the the, the Quran you know hears her her complaints uh, and so you get a different perspective on on women's issues if if you'll if we can say it that way by the time we get to the end of the Quran it gets much more granular 
and much more responsive in a way to specific questions that you know presumably uh, women are bringing to to the prophet muhammad that the quran is then you know from a devotional understanding responding to uh, so yeah it, there's a, there's a definite development and a definite arc and in the middle of all that from the late the mid to late meccan period into the early medinan period are all the biblical um, shared figures uh, which which is you know relevant at a time when you have uh, an emerging Islamic polity that is establishing itself in relationship to to Jewish and Christian specifically polities. So in in a way, the arc of how and where women figures appear makes a lot of sense when you when you look at accounts of of Sira and, and accounts of the development of of the early polity. Mm-hmm. Talk to us about women's speech in the Quran. What sorts of themes and tropes do we see there? Oh, there's a lot there. And um, when I started counting the verses, I, I was particularly taken really by the fact that the, the Quran does include quite a number of verses that are women speaking. And, and a good number of those are women praying. And the most mm-hmm. prolific figure in, in the Quran in terms of numbers of verses that contain her speech is the Queen of Sheba, uh, who is a, you know, I have a chapter on... Which can I say? Yeah. Which can I say was a surprise to me because I would have expected Maryam to have... Yeah, so in, I, term, I don't know. in terms of the number of verses, Maryam, uh, the Queen of Sheba, I believe, if I'm remembering quickly correctly, has eight. Uh, Zuleika has six and Maryam has um, five. So yeah, yeah the, and, and the Queen of Sheba is of course a figure who is not part of a prophetic family, you know, does not have any specific relation to another male figure, you know, other than the those people in her um, council, in her um, you know advisory council, and, and so you you have you know not only a figure that is empowered in a political sense, but also one that's, uh, you know, asserting her presence uh, through her speech as well. Right, for sure. And how do Muhammad's wives figure in the Quran? Yeah, so this, I looked at this in, in some depth as as you might, um, you know, might expect. Right. And I was not only looking at prominent figures who are mentioned uh, somewhat frequently in the, in the Quran, but I was also looking at these more um, passing references. And so I, I not only noticed references to the wives, but also to the daughters. There's a few verses that reference the daughters and right. other figures yeah, as well. Like mm-hmm. There's other daughter figures as well that might not come to people's minds right away as being mentioned, but, but several prophetic figures are interacting with their daughters. Um, Lut, of course, has this, um, uh, you know, verses where he mentions his daughters. And the, there's there's other mentions as well. And so I was thinking not only about the relationship between prophetic figures and their spouses, you know, of which there's many couples uh, in the Quran to look at. But when it comes to, you know, I was looking at daughter daughters as well. Um, and specifically when it came to the family of, 
of the Prophet Muhammad, I was looking at the ways in which the depictions of his family compare and contrast to to other prophetic families. Um, and there's a lot to be, you know, I found I found quite a bit to comment on in there, but maybe some of the most interesting would be my trying to tease out this distinction between uh, the the use of the the term as wedge for for the prophet's wives, and then also the idea of niset and nabi, um, niset you know being women um, broadly, meaning women presumably women women of the household. And what I try to say, a lot of past commentators have taken niset and nabi to mean specifically wives, and it's translated like that in in many English translations anyway. And I try to make the case that Nisa and Nabi is actually referring to the women of the, the Prophet's family more broadly. And I make that case, like looking at, at, at um, Surat al-Ahzab. Um, but, you know, it's these like small interventions that I'm trying to make a linguistic argument for that might not have a whole lot of cumulative impact, but it is a, it is in a sense, a reprioritization, if you will, of the, the actual, you know, the actual Quran and, you know, what information it, it could give us about any number of, of topics, you know, whether as scholars or as practicing Muslims. You know, I just remember there's, um, you have a discussion in the book where you talk about how the, the family and women's bodies figure in the end times, right? So as signs of the end times, um, this last, the loss of the family or something happening to the female body or, you know, the, the, a woman uh, having a miscarriage and such, or uh, sort of very, very symbolic things um, that are very real. Why, can, can, you, can you tell us, can you tell our audience about that and what you, um, and sort of the, the loss of the family as punishment, uh, the specific references to female bodies, mm-hmm. the, the, the woman's body uh, in, as signs of end times. Yes, so that one of the signs of the end times mentioned specifically in, in, in the Quran that you know women will will lose what they're what they're carrying. Um, and I was I was thinking about this primarily in a pastoral lens and how devastating that experience. I, I've seen that experience be for for women and to, so to to think about you know the horror of end times as um, you know the the female body itself has this uh, particular response to to the terror of of end times that you know I think it's not just about the the affect on the body but also the the you know psychological emotional trauma that can go with that experience um yeah and and i and part of the part of my methodology for approaching the quran at least in in the devotional circles in which i'm also kind of operating is to help people sink a bit deeper into particular meanings to kind of slow down and let the quran have an affective you know an affective uh let, let ourselves have an affective response. And right. I think there's also a modality of writing about the Quran 
in Islamic studies, and, and Karen Bauer is certainly doing this as well as as are other people, to use you know use that the you know thinking about what is the desired affective response you know of, of particular uh, assertions in the Quran, and I and I think that's one where the where the Quran is using this very specific you know female experience and while it's devastating too for for partners there's a the, the immediate impact of you know having a miscarriage is is on you know the female herself uh, and and so it is a it's communicating in a way through this you know deeply feminine experience um you know in this affective way uh the you know this this point about end times. And so that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to slow down the reading a little bit and maybe, you know, especially for Muslims who have just been exposed to the Quran their whole lives to maybe show some different um, perspectives on, on verses. It was really powerful. Um, I want to talk about positionality, which you engage with in the book, uh, in the beginning of the book, when you're discussing the challenges of writing an academic book as a practicing devotional Muslim, can you tell us more about some of these challenges and why something like an assertion of your identity and beliefs is necessary or important or constructive in academic works? Yeah. So unlike some of my, um, you know, male or ma- you know male mm-hmm. presenting colleagues, I can't because I'm wearing a scarf. It's more obvious that I come from a devotional Muslim perspective. And so when I'm in academic circles, you know, because of just the the legacy of ascribing particular meanings to a headscarf or just looking at a Muslim women's agency in derogatory ways, I'm always coming up against I'm not given the benefit of the doubt as a scholar or, you know, as a, as a practicing Muslim, you know, who, who does affiliate in, in devotional circles, there's a bit of a suspicion as well around Islamic studies in the academy and, you know, sometimes rightly so. And the, you know, those two, those two suspicions about being, you know, a woman who's a practicing Muslim in the academy and, you know, and, and, having to navigate those two spaces, trying to make a mark, trying to say how I, how my work brings something to bear for Quranic studies when it's done in a secular modality, and also trying to assert that, that I might have something valuable to bring in devotional Muslim circles where authority is more often religious authority and, and scholarship are, are more often, you know, gendered in, in a, in a more masculine way. And so, you know, from in either space, whether in the academy or whether in Muslim devotional circles, it's a, mm, a you know, struggle might not be the right word, but it is, it's definitely, uh, you know, my my authority or my the value that I bring is intrinsically questioned, and, and part of what I try to do in the introduction of this book is to reassert the value of paying attention to women's voices in devotional spaces, and you know, paying attention to people who come to the to Quranic studies, you know, with a 
a, a different you know set of for formative um, you know theological lenses. Uh, you know, and, and, and it remain, remains to be seen how how convincing that is, or how much of of an impact in either one of those spaces that that I'm able to make, given that I'm straddling both of them somewhat precariously. As we close, um, is there anything else that you'd like to add before we end? Yeah, you know, I get emails sometimes from. Muslim women who are thinking about an academic path as, as a potential career. And I think I'd just like to add an, an on end on a note of encouragement to to those women in particular who are thinking, is the it could the academy be a place for me um, ultimately to, you know, deepen my exploration uh, of Islamic studies and, you know, my own, you know, their own. Um, journey to to understand Islamic texts and and traditions and and I so I just like to end with that encouragement for for people out there that there's more and more space opening up I I think um, and not only is there more space maybe opening up for creative academic works even if no, there's not necessarily a lot of space for. Uh, like tenure track jobs, I think there's a lot of community impact that we need people who are educated in historical critical methods and in the perspectives that can be brought to the table by Islamic studies frameworks. And and so I just wanted to, to say that this, as much as this joining between perspectives can be difficult and can, can kind of force you at times to rethink things from a devotional lens or from, you know, to, to rethink or, or re-navigate scholarship and kind of some of the rough edges um, and the prejudices in, in Islamic studies context in the academy, that it's worth it and that there's so much need out there on a practical level um, that, that I'd really encourage people to, to go into the field. For sure. Same. Same here. And as we close, we like to ask our authors to tell us a little bit about any work they're doing currently, which you've mentioned, and I'm so thrilled about it, uh, that we can look forward to in the near future, inshallah. Yeah, so I have that work on men in the Quran, um, a little bit on the back burner right now, because I'm working on a, a project It's forthcoming from Cambridge University Press, a shorter book in a series of um, looking at religion and perspectives on monotheism. So I'm writing a, a contribution from an, an Islamic studies uh, perspective, looking at the the intellectual tradition and the ways in in which uh, monotheism is is understood from from an Islamic perspective. And for me, this is, you know, not in gender studies at all, which has primarily been my wheelhouse for a while. Uh, but it's given me this chance to, maybe go back to to the fundamentals a little bit more. And while I'm still doing really close um, Quranic studies textual analysis for this particular project, um, I, I think it's it's helpful for me to, you know, pull pull back and and go to such a more foundational concept, whereas my my work on gender was able to to touch on on kind of core um, you know core aspects of of creed, but it was a, a bit 
more uh, niche, if you will. Uh, so I'm excited for this next project and, and to be in dialogue with other scholars that are not specifically writing on gender. Okay. Well, thank you so much. That's all the questions that I had. And I enjoyed this very much. And I'm so grateful you made time for us. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. All right. So that was my conversation with Celine Ibrahim, where she discusses her new book, Women and Gender in the Quran, published with Oxford University Press in 2020. Thank you so much for listening and stay safe. Salam.